All right, well, good morning, church. Um, we are, as uh, Douglas mentioned, going through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them out, open them up to chapter 6. We're going to be um, sitting in chapter 6 for um, this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 52. So chapter 6, 45 through 52. As we've been walking through the book of Mark, um, perhaps you have noticed that we have seen Jesus do one unnatural thing after another, one miracle after another. The, the power that we have seen Jesus put on display is a power that honestly should be foreign to us. It stands apart from the natural man. It is a different kind of power that the world has never seen before. Um, our hope as we go through the book of Mark and as we hold up Jesus is that we would be challenged to grow in our faith of this amazing, amazing King, this Lord and, sa and Savior. Really, the, the Christian life is a life that requires faith. It requires a tremendous amount of faith. Now, the problem with this is, is that faith is not natural to us. It's not natural to me. It is not natural to you. What is natural to me and to you are things like worry and fear, anxiety. Those are the things that are natural to us. Jesus wants us to be a people of faith. And as we examine his life, as we go through the book of Mark, my hope is that we would see our faith in him grow stronger and stronger. Every story that we open up and that we read, every miracle that we see him do, my hope, my prayer is that our faith in him would grow stronger and stronger. The story that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus doing something, again, completely miraculous. And what we see is him trying to pull out of his disciples what my prayer is for us as a people, that he would grow their faith. The story we're going to look at today specifically is going to show us how Jesus grows the faith of his people. And so if you have your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. In this passage, we're going to see how Jesus grows the faith of his people. Verse 45, I'll read it, and then we will pray. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, this falls right on the heels of the story that we looked at last week, where Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000. So he dismisses the disciples Go out on a boat while he stays to dismiss the crowd. 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. 
do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you um, for your word. Lord, thank you for the encouragement it is, Lord. And I, pray, I, I praise you, Lord, just even for the effect that it has on our lives, Lord, that it would make us a people of strong faith. Lord, of a faith that cannot be moved because we worship a God who cannot be moved. Lord, I thank you um, for the opportunity to be in a place like this this morning to worship freely the one, the true great God. Lord, and I pray that you would, um, in your word, uncover for us this morning through your grace the power of your truth. Lord, I pray that you would see um, not just its power on display in the book, Lord, but that we would be able to know as we leave this place the power that it has in our lives, Lord. So I pray that we would be a people that are marked by faith and by your word. pray that you would accomplish that this morning. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Have you ever been in a storm? Have you ever been in a storm? My guess is if you live in Iowa, which I'm assuming most of you do, you have probably been in your fair share of your storms here in Iowa. I can think of a couple years back, we took a group of people from um, the spot, from church, from Parkview, on a mission trip to Belize. And uh, we, we left in the summertime, and as we were driving up, we flew out of Minneapolis. And as we were driving up, I think it's you know, north of, I'm not sure what the highway is, if it's 218, north of, of Waterloo, that kind of eventually pick up 35 and head north to catch Minneapolis, to get to Minneapolis. We were driving up there, and it was in the middle of a storm. And it was a, quite a, a beautiful sight, because as we drove up again, I think it was 218, it was, I've never seen anything like this before, driving up the highway, and literally on one side of the highway, you can see that there's a tornado that's in the works, like it's a tornado warning, we're driving, on the other side, it was just like bright and beautiful, it, just the, it was like the highway divided this storm. We eventually got up there about, I think right when we crossed into Minneapolis, or Minnesota uh, border, we had to pull over into a gas station and take shelter, it was like a terrible terrible, terrible thing. So we flew out of Minneapolis in the middle of a tornado. And as we got on the plane and we we're almost about ready to land in Belize, um, the pilot comes on the radio and says, hey, just want to make you people aware that currently there is a hurricane that is just a few miles off of shore and it looks like it could miss Belize, but just FYI. Okay, so we flew out of a tornado and we flew in conveniently to a hurricane. All right. That's what life is like in Iowa, right? There are lots of storms here. I can think of times that we were in Belize and I was on the water with my father-in-law. We're in the boat doing, just going to a key and a storm started to brew. And there's nothing like being, I mean, it's as terrible as it is to be in a storm. When you're in a storm on a boat, it's bad, all right? It's terrifying. It is terrifying. The waters are deep and who knows what's lurking beneath those waters. Have you ever been... And a storm. The thing about storms is that storms are uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable, radically uncomfortable, depending on the storm. They can be horrible, horrible storms. We've seen many this year, very uncomfortable circumstances. Storms are uncontrollable. You can maybe predict them, but you cannot control them. You can control where you're at, but you can't control the storms. And depending on where you live, not just are they uncomfortable, not just are storms uncontrollable, but storms can even be unavoidable depending on where you live. 
The thing about storms is that storms are a big part of the Christian faith. If you want to be a person who lives out your Christian faith, you will be a person who is well acquainted with storms. The Christian faith in and of itself is inherently uncomfortable. I was reading an article just yesterday by this guy named Brett McCracken, and he has a book coming out that's about the uncomfortable nature of Christianity. That's what the whole book is about. Christian faith is inherently uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, I did not go into religion to make me happy. If I wanted to make myself happy, I could do that with a bottle of port. Or maybe we would say a six-pack, all right? I can find happiness in a six-pack, right? I didn't go into religion to make myself happy. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Today, in our passage, in the story of a storm, what we learn is that God uses storms to grow the faith of his people. How does he grow the faith of his people? God sends storms. This may not be good news for you today. It may not be good news for you today. But I hope that when you leave, you would see the good news in it. What we're going to do this morning is just simply work through this passage. And for many of us, this may be a familiar miracle. I would say of Jesus' miracles, this is perhaps the most famous, one of the most famous. I mean, there are many of them. This is one of the most famous miracles. Um, And there are... What we see as we go through each miracle is we will see that Jesus doesn't just willy-nilly sort of do things, right? Every miracle that he performs, every act that he does, Jesus has a purpose. So what we want to do as we work through the text is pull back, why did Jesus walk on the water? In our story, we see that the disciples are in great trouble. They are rowing their way across sea. Wind is blowing. The storm is coming. For eight hours, we're told that they're at sea. In John chapter 6, where the story is told again, we learn that they are about three to four miles outside of the shore, rowing and rowing and rowing. The disciples have been brought to the very end of their ability. Remember, these are fishermen. These are men who are well acquainted with this sea. They understand how to work against the storm, how not to set out against the storm probably. They understand what's at stake. They know how to do it. And for eight hours, three to four miles, they are getting nowhere. So the question begs, here are men who will understand the nature of the storm, the nature of the sea. Why are they in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm? Well, the answer is given to us in the first verse. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. He made, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He commanded the disciples to get in to the boat. See, this difficult situation is exactly where Jesus wants the disciples to be. This moment of uncertainty, of anguish, of terror and fear, this is exactly where the disciples need to be. The disciples are in this position, this is interesting, because of their obedience to Jesus. Their obedience to Jesus is the reason why they find themselves 
in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night. This exhausting, uncomfortable, uncontrollable situation was the direct result of their obedience and their allegiance to Jesus. Now, why would Jesus intentionally put them in this position with their lives at stake? Why would, I mean, there's no cell phones they can call for help, right? Three to four miles out of the middle of the sea. There is no help for these men. Why would Jesus, risking their lives, put them in this position? Jesus would bring them to the very end of their ability, to the, of their, the end of their strength and their experience, to develop in them what they could not achieve on their own. Jesus put them in this position to bring about in them what they could not bring about on their own. He understands that there is a particular lesson that can only be taught outside of the disciples' comfort. That as long as the disciples remain comfortable and in control, there is a lesson for their faith, necessary for their faith, that they would not get. Often, God's grace comes to us in life's most uncomfortable moments. Perhaps some of you know this all too well. That in those moments where we are outside of our comfort, outside of our control, in those moments, there are lessons that we need to learn that we could not if we weren't in that position. There's a lesson to be taught. The disciples are out at sea, and where is Jesus? Verse 46 tells us that they're out at the boat, Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now, if you remember a couple weeks back, we heard a story about a similar storm. We kind of skimmed through it right before Jesus got to the, the garrisons where he cast out the demons from the demoniac. There was a storm that took place with the disciples in a boat then as well. Okay, there's a big difference between the first storm and the second storm. If you remember the first storm, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. The storm is brewing. Jesus is taking a nap. And, and the disciples wake him up. Jesus, do something. He wakes up. He stills the storm. The, the waves, the wind ceases. But now in the second storm, in our text this morning, Jesus is at the land, on the land, all alone, while the disciples are in the boat. The big difference between the first storm and the second storm is the physical presence of Jesus. He is not physically in the boat. But we learn that just because he's not in the boat, he has not abandoned the disciples. Verse 48 says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them. So Jesus is about removed from the disciples about three or four miles. He is up on a mountain, and he is in prayer while the disciples are out on the boat. Now, Jesus can see the disciples and their situation. Right? I don't know about you, but I can't see three or four miles ahead, especially in the middle of a storm. Jesus miraculously can see exactly where the disciples are at. 
See, ultimately what Jesus is doing with the disciples is he is training them to live a life of faith. And eventually there will come a time in their journey, in their life, where he physically will not be with them. I love watching Jesus train the disciples. It's like, what did he call it, scaffolding? Is that what you call an education? Where you kind of give a little bit and then you just kind of slowly take it away bit by bit. And that's what he's doing. Is that the right term or wrong term? I sound like I know what I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying, right? And so Jesus, in the storm, he reminds them of what he can do with he, when he's with them. Exact same position. Now Jesus is not with them physically in the boat. He is training these men ultimately to be his church. That's what he's training them to do. Though he is physically distant from them, they have not left his sight. Now this picture that we see the disciples in, this should be familiar. It should be familiar to you if you have any history being around the church. Yes, it should be familiar because it is a famous story. It is a story that often is told and is favored by Sunday school teachers. It's favored even by popular culture, by hip-hop artists. It's a story that is favored by artists alike. Our culture loves the idea of Jesus walking on the water. It should be a story that should be, if you have any history with the Bible, you should have at least heard of this man who walks on the water. But more than that, again, if you have history around the church, this should be a familiar story to you because it beautifully symbolizes our present reality. This is a picture of you and me as the church. Jesus Christ, we know, was raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Romans 8, 34 tells us that he is there now presently praying, interceding on our behalf. He ascended ultimately to the ultimate heights of heaven. And while in the darkness of the night, in the middle of the rough and open sea, his tiny church is fighting against the wind Oars in the water, rowing and rowing and rowing while Jesus sits on the throne in complete control, fully aware of our position. Hours of rowing and rowing and rowing, exhausted, anguish, fear, while Jesus, knowing our position, is in complete control. This is a picture of our reality. The text says that this is the fourth watch of the night. Somewhere This is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. This is the darkest right before the dawn, the darkest part of the night. Jesus comes to the disciples in the darkest part of the night. When they had been spent totally, completely exhausted, facing despair, likely in the boat without hope, they have been brought to the very end of themselves. And this is the moment when Jesus comes to them. So how, in the middle of this storm, how does Jesus use this storm to grow their faith? I think there's two things that we see here. Two ways he uses the storm to grow their faith. And as we talk about the storm, really this is a picture of the storms that come into our life. And so I just want to connect those dots right away, okay? This is a picture of the storms that me and you know as we try to walk out the Christian faith. The first way is in the storm, Jesus reveals his divinity. Jesus comes to them, we're told, walking on the sea. 
Then we are, we're told something really interesting. I don't know if you caught it when we read it, but it says, He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. He meant to pass by them. What an interesting thing to mean to do. Like, Jesus, was he just being sneaky? Like, maybe I could get past him real quick. You know, is that what he's trying to do? Or is he trying to, like, sneak up on him and, bah, gotcha. Like, maybe just, is he messing with them in the middle of the storm? Why would he mean to pass by them? What in the world is he talking about? This word is used passed by them, the word that's used here is translated from the Old Testament, specifically in moments where God reveals himself to his people. The time that we see it first is in Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, where Moses is on Mount Sinai, and, and Moses asks God, he says, God, show me your glory. The Bible says, behold, there is a place, this is God talking to Moses, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. So as, as God reveals himself to Moses, what he does is his glory passes by Moses. As he reveals himself. We see this again in 1 Kings chapter 19, 11. The prophet Elijah, the word of the Lord, came to him in 1 Kings. And he went out to stand on the mountain. And we learn this in verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by him. The Lord was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake, not in the fire. But eventually he would speak to Elijah in a low whisper. Same word, passed by Elijah. But I think the, the most helpful place especially when we talk about getting to the meaning of this text this morning in the Old Testament, is Job chapter 9. Now, for me, it's really important that as we look at these New Testament stories, these stories in the, in the Gospels of, of Mark, as we look at the New Testament, we read the life of Jesus, we constantly have to be drawing lines back to the Old Testament because we need to see that this is one story. A common misconception is you can think the Old Testament, God tried some things, didn't really work out, so let me just go ahead and send Jesus down, he'll fix everything. But that's not the way it works. Okay, what we see in the Bible is that it's all one story. It's one story and the two are connected. The second, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old. All right. So in Job chapter nine, we see this exact thing play out. If you have your Bibles, I would even just invite you to turn there. I'm going to read a few verses, and I think it's really helpful for us to see this. If you know Job, you know that Job is a man who's well acquainted with storms. He was a man who was faithful to God, and he had everything taken away from him. Everything that he held dear, family, possessions, everything just stripped from him. I mean, you want to talk about a miserable existence. Job was a man who was faithful, who dotted his I's, crossed his T's, and yet his life was not one that we would wish on even our enemies. It was a painful life filled with one storm after another. Job chapter 9. What Job is doing here in this passage is, if you remember, God provided him with some friends who weren't always that helpful. Okay, And in this storm, he, in this passage here, he finds himself arguing with his friends about why he is suffering. 
And Job is speaking about the great separation that exists between God and man. God is God and man is man. There is a difference. There is a difference. Job is going to bat for who this God is. In Job chapter 9, I'm going to read a few verses here. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. He has hardened himself against him and succeeded. Sorry, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. As Job describes the God he worships, this great God, the, the, the visual image he gives his friends is a God who walks on water, whose waves cannot stop him. He walks on top of the waves. This is the God that Job worships, a God who tramples the waves of the sea. Verse 9 who made the bear and Orion, Pallades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Check out verse 11. Behold, he passes by me. And here's the difference between Job's reality and our reality today. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He passes by Job, and Job does not see him. He does not see him. See, Jesus intends to make this visible for his disciples. Jesus wants to show the disciples the God that Job knew but could not see. Now Jesus intends to pass by these men in the boat as he tramples the sea beneath his feet and makes himself visible to the disciples. This is our reality. In Jesus, we have the fullness of the divine in a form that we can see. This is who we worship. In the middle of the storm, Jesus reveals his full divinity to his disciples to strengthen their faith in the middle of the storm. I love this image. For some reason, until I started studying this passage, for me, the image of Jesus walking on the sea, even though I've read the story thousands of times, has always been just, you know, like a sheet, like the sea looking like a sheet of glass, and Jesus just walking on top of the sheet of glass. But as I started to, to study the passage, that's a very, the image couldn't be any different, right? Because the waves are turning in the sea. And if you, if you, I don't know if his hair was long, if he had locks, I don't know what his hair looked like, okay? But if he was walking on the sea, I can just imagine him walking in complete control and every part of him just blowing, blowing with the wind. The rain is coming down in sheets of rain and Jesus is just walking completely unfazed. This would be terrifying to see. 
This would be terrifying for us to see. And it's interesting that as he means to pass by them, as he reveals himself to them, what he does not do immediately is relieve them of the, their discomfort. As they're sitting in the boat, staring at Jesus, the wind is still blowing. The rain is still coming down. They still have no idea what their fate is. But their eyes are fixed on Jesus. And in that moment, he means to pass by them, to show them who he is. I think this is a good lesson for us, the church, to remember. There are times in your life when the wind blows and it does not stop. I think the worst thing we can do is say, if you have a strong, strong faith in God, the wind will stop. Well, history tells us otherwise, right? Because we have people, I don't even know the names of my great-grandparents because they've come and gone, right? History of man is a history of pain of suffering, of loss, of storm after storm after storm. And when you're in the boat and the waves are blowing, where does Jesus want your eyes? Fixed on him. Fixed on him. Not so that the wind will stop, but so that you can overcome the wind. Right? When there's no more wind to blow. Fix your eyes. He is not just about relieving them of their discomfort. If that is all he intended to do, he would not have made the walk. Jesus could have been up on the mountain and said, stop, please, storm, stop, give him a break. But he didn't do that. He walked, trampled the sea to get to these men, to show them who he was. In the storm, he reveals himself to them as the divine God. He wants his disciples' eyes fixed on them. The second thing is that in the storm, Jesus does not just reveal his divinity. He also reveals his proximity. Not just his divinity. He reveals his proximity. So there's Jesus standing by the side of the boat. And these men are terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. Then the wind ceased. What a scene. The wind is howling. The waves are crashing. The disciples are exhausted, rowing and rowing and rowing, getting nowhere. They're terrified. They watch this man. Is it a ghost? What is happening? They've seen one miracle after another. It's, it's hard for me to even imagine them being so scared. And you would think, Why? Like you have seen Jesus do one thing after another, but they're terrified. He's standing beside the boat. The wind is blowing, and his words take heart. It is, I do not be afraid. The lack of fear should be embedded in his identity and who he is. If he was not Jesus, then you should be afraid. But because he is God, do not be afraid. Afraid. These men saw him heal sick person after sick person, cast out demons out of men, bring a little girl back from the dead. They've actually seen him calm a storm, feed thousands of people with just a little bit of fish, a little bit of loaves of bread. Jesus could have looked at them standing by the side of the boat 
with their eyes fixed on him, beginning to watch them connect the dots. Okay, this is Jesus. This is not a ghost. This is Jesus. And Jesus could easily have said, listen, what is going on? You just saw me feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. What is happening? Why are you terrified? Forget it. Like, let me go find 12 new dudes, okay? Like, that's what he could have done. Why are you guys terrified? You weak and faithless people, I'm finished with you. You still don't get it. But instead of leaving them, what does Jesus do? Draws near to them. In the midst of their fear, in the midst of their exhaustion, their anxiety, their pain, Jesus steps in the boat. He steps in the boat with his people. And at that moment, the wind stops. I can think of times when my kids, especially when they were little and they would wake up in the middle of the night, maybe have a scary dream or they'd want to sleep in our room or whatever. And sometimes their fear would be unfounded. Like there was nothing to be afraid of, okay, you know. And in those moments, like, you know, I'd hold them. And about the only comfort I could really give them is that, and I would find myself saying it, and maybe you guys have heard these words before, it's okay, daddy's here. Daddy's here. Just the hope being that they would feel my presence and and they would know that it's okay that my fear is unfounded dad's here i don't know what your familiar history looks like but these are words that every single one of us today if we claim jesus as our lord and savior should hear on a regular basis don't be afraid daddy's here Daddy is here. Some of you are going through storms right now, and this truth is exactly what you need as you fight against the wind. You can put those paddles in the water as much as you want. You can row with as much strength as you have, but really what you need to be reminded of is Daddy is here. Daddy's here. This is how... God talks about himself in Exodus 3.14 when God sent Moses. Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus is using a lot of the same language. Take heart, it is I. You know, when this is the reminder we need, when our marriage may be on the rocks and it's difficult at home, the reminder we need is daddy is here. When the kids are acting crazy and you have to go down and you're you're praying that Jesus would intervene so you don't have to spend the night in jail all right you need to be reminded maybe that's just personal I don't know you need to be reminded that God is with you he's also with them all right they're gonna need him more than I after this all right I would never do that I don't know what you're talking about but when the jobs aren't there. When the bank account, you look at that and you're like, I really hope that this is a mistake because I hope that's not reflective of reality right now. When the money isn't there, the reminder that we need, whatever the storm is, storms of depression, of loneliness, of loss, whatever it is, the storm that maybe you're facing or that is facing you this week that you don't know about, the reminder we need is that daddy is here. There's an equation I heard Paul Tripp um, give, and I think it's really helpful, and it actually just nails this passage, is that God's power 
plus God's presence equals everything you need. God's power plus God's presence is everything that you need. This story is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. Christ comes to us in our time of trouble. In the darkest hour of night, Jesus leaves his throne in heaven and comes to earth, enters into our boat. The prayer is that we would recognize the futility of our own strength and learn to rely on him. In his power, he draws near to us. This life for the church, for the believer, will be a life that's marked by storm after storm after storm. His presence can bring some comfort now in the midst of the storm. But as the church, ultimately, we have a promise that one day he will come again. And when he comes, when he draws near in fullness and for good, his kingdom fully restored, things will be as they should be. Revelation 21.4 tells us, then he will wipe away every tear from eyes, from our eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, in 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that what we know in part now, one day will be fully known. So is there comfort in the storm now? Yes, if we remember his divinity, who he is, and his proximity, where he is with us, through the storm, even when the winds don't stop. Like I think of what happened last weekend when we were in worship here. There was another church, you know, 20 miles south of us in Texas that was a little smaller than us, worshiping, doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And a man walks in and one after another, 26 people later. The greatest mass murder, I think, in the history of Texas is what they said, right? What a terrible, like... Those people, as they're sitting in there that day, their storm ended with their life. It ended with their life. It's a terrible, terrible thing. God doesn't promise that this life will be a life that we don't. This is a life that if we remember his power, if we remember his proximity with us, then, not that our discomfort will be relieved, in this life, but we will be able to face it with a confidence and a hope that only he can provide. And the way he did that is by dying on the cross, right? Sending his son by Jesus, ultimately going to the cross to pay the price for our sins. This morning, we're going to remember this through communion, which we do on a regular basis. Um, and if you're, if you're new here and not familiar, we have three tables that are set up there's a little loaves and um, just after I get done praying you can help yourself to one of the tables and just dip in um, and this is a time where we remember what it cost for us to be able to face these storms in life with hope ultimately God wants us to be a people who grow in our faith and you can't grow in your faith if you don't remember his power and his presence is always always with you in, uh, I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians here real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
says this, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this life of storms, the season that we live where storms come in and come out, um, we have to remember who he is and where he is with us all the time until he comes again. We will be a people who proclaim his death. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you um, just for this truth this morning that you um, are all powerful, that you are with us. Lord, and those two things in and of themselves, although we are tempted to think there is more we need in life, but our prayer is that those two things would be what fulfills us, what satisfies us, what reminds us um, of where we should put our eyes when the winds are blowing and the waves are crashing, Father. I pray you would make us be a people who have a strong faith and a powerful, powerful God. But we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.